0: Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Maria McDonald, and Melissa McCradden talking about life, death, illness, and decisions. These two bioethicists have to take into account so many different variables, all for the benefit of a group of people or one individual. Now, it's interesting because Maria comes at this conversation from more of a legal policy grassroots side, and Melissa comes at it from more of an artificial intelligence science neuroscience side. And we actually... Pair those two together and find there's a lot of similarities when it comes to bioethics in both of these two fields. This episode is set up in two parts, even though it's all compact into one, there's kind of two parts to it. And the first part is all the education on what these two do for a living, how they make decisions, how they keep out bias, or do they utilize their biases from life experience? How do they prioritize their values? How do you live with the decision once you've made that decision? The issue of policies. And lots more. So then we apply that education and all those ideas and concepts that they use day to day into part two, which is actually applying them to the hot topics in the media today. First, we start with assisted dying and all the variables that play in a complex topic like that. Then we move into gene editing, the ability to decrease the amount of issues people will have before they're even born. And lastly, artificial intelligence and how that is used in research today that can expedite the process but also the issues that come with that. Before we get to this awesome info-packed episode, remember to check out truelocal.ca. This Canadian company sources high-quality meat, they individually package all of it, flash-freeze it, they put it on dry ice so it stays frozen in the box for four days being out of the fridge, and they ship that box directly to your house. So again, if you're not there to pick it up, it'll stay frozen for four days. This meat is high-quality, individually packaged. You throw it in your freezer, use it whenever you want, and you don't have to go to the grocery store to get it. The best part, if you want your interval of delivery to be two months, two months works. If you want it to be a month and a half, month and a half. There's no set schedule. You decide. You can also change your order every month. Just go to truelocal.ca and change your order up. That's T R U L O C A L dot C-A. If you want to give them a try, use my discount code HeroicMinds25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box or $10 off a personal size box. All right, here we go. I mean, at half the time, we all have problems making decisions nowadays, right? It's just so difficult. So oh. we, to be the one that's, well, let's ask... We know who to ask, and it ends up being you. So you now you have
1: that. <laughs> I'll clarify that it's not us making the decision. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Help with that decision, and I'm moderately helping because I'm still a trainee. So I feel
2: I should be transparent about that. <laughs> oh, right. Right, <laughs> right. Right. Trainee. I know, but right. She's
1: expert in her field of neuropsychology, neurophilosophy, and neuro
2: uh, neuro science. I would say. Neuroscience yeah, expert. I, yeah. I think, I think that's you are. Fair. Oh yeah. Yeah. Neuro You're an New, one. I would you're say, new at yeah. Got it. Okay, so what are, right, let's go. Start. Let's start with that. Sure. What are the specialties,
0: <laughs> and and on a day to day basis, what would you, if someone said, what is it you do every day? What would, what would your answer be? Hard stuff. First, we hear from Maria McDonald and what exactly it is that she does.
1: Some people call it wicked problems. Mm. So I get consulted when people are um, emotionally upset. They might have moral distress. They don't know what the right thing is to do and they need someone to help them think it through. And because I'm not part of the healthcare team, I work in a hospital, I can look at it from the outside and I can bring my experience and my knowledge and ethics to the conversation. Um, Most of my questions are, how can, you know, how can we let this woman go home? She's not going to be safe at home. And, you know, if she, if we let her go home, she's going to be upset or she'll sue us or her family will sue us. What do we do in this case? And so that's often a discussion of consent, who gets to consent, capacity, who's got the capacity to make the decision? Does this woman who's got, um, let's say, she's rehabilitating from a hip injury, can she go back home safely? So who gets to decide, and does she has the, does she have the capacity to decide, and then if there's a substitute decision maker acting on her behalf because she's not, let's say she's assessed as not being capable, how what's the role of that substitute decision maker, and how do they make the decision? So. For this woman, often um, the team is concerned about how she's going to cope at home, and sometimes they do things like they do an OT assessment, an occupational therapy assessment at home. And they come back and they go, wow, Bria. She's fine at home. She's going up and down those stairs, no problem. She's got a walker, or she's got a cane, or she does the bum bump up and down the stairs. She's perfectly fine. I thought she wouldn't be fine. You know, or the woman says, I'll manage. I I have a daughter at home I really want to take care of. Or I have cats at home. They need me. I gotta get home, kind of thing. And so um so getting the team to see what the values are of the patient and sometimes the team's values have to be discussed and prioritized and sometimes we have to do a little bit of problem solving so the patient says for me my own decision about my own body is the most important we often call that autonomy or self-determination and the team might say no no no, safety's first but we both have those same values they're prioritized differently Mm -hmm. and just just talking about the fact that we have the same values on the patient side and on the team side and realizing they're prioritized just a little differently gives an aha moment and we all go, oh, okay, we all are thinking about the same things. Okay, what can we do to be imaginative, to come up with a solution to make this the best thing we can?
0: So it's a job of compromising, it sounds like.
1: It's facilitation, it's understanding the perspectives, Um, And it's the team letting go of their number one choice sometimes, because the team says, we know, we're the experts, we've seen this gazillions of times, she's going to be better off if she goes into a long-term care home for another three months before she goes home. And the woman's going like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not my choice, I really need to be home. So then the team has to say, okay maybe we can't go with the cadillac version we have to come up with the ford version all right the ford version would be getting home care in getting physiotherapy to come in um getting someone to drive her to occupational therapy or whatever other therapy she needs getting people to come in and help her with bathing um you know and a whole list you know friends to come in and do some cooking perhaps who are we going to line up from the family who's going to help with a b c and d and so once we let go of that kind like version this is the best for you that we can possibly imagine then sometimes we can come up with a little bit different option that satisfies the needs and the wishes of the person but also helps the team feel like they're getting done what they wanted to get done, and and achieving some of those goals.
0: Next, we hear from Melissa McCradden and how bioethics is a part of her career.
1: Doing, in my current
2: position really, uh, what I'm looking at doing right now is supporting AI systems within healthcare. So, artificial intelligence is a huge area that has a lot of potential for benefiting the welfare of patients. but it also comes with significant ethical concerns and what I see a lot of at the moment is that on the computer science side of things they're very cognizant of the fact that what they're doing has potential ethical implications and they're looking for guidance with that regard and so from the ethics side of things most people have very strong backgrounds in philosophy and law and other sorts of humanities disciplines and So when they're trying to look at, you know, convoluted deep neural network and trying to parse out the ethical issues, that can be quite a challenge. So both sides are kind of, um, both sides have capacity in their area of expertise. And so the idea of the AI ethicist is someone who can bridge that gap and be able to have you know a good level of familiarity and understanding of the computer science side of things, as well as developing capacity in um, that stronger ethics uh, literature base. And so what I'm doing mostly right now is really trying to understand what is going on on each of these sides and how are we going to integrate them. So This can be in terms of how are we going to operationalize something like fairness. So a lot of people in ethics have done a lot of work at looking at different frameworks for fairness. What does fairness mean? How is it going to implicate um, different systems? How is it going to be effective at the level of the individual? Um, And from the computer science side of things, fairness might be something more like being close to what they call the ground truth. So the essence of the phenomenon that you're trying to look at, fairness might move you away from the ground truth and it might compromise your results. And so the idea of what I'm developing capacity in is how to make those things fit together and how to see about going about putting these AI applications in hospital systems in a way that's going to benefit the patients as well as benefiting the healthcare team.
0: Wow. That sounded—you've said that many times before. That was amazing. I
2: have not. Had
1: that <laughs> <laughs> that
0: is, when, you, when you're talking fairness on one side, that could be through artificial intelligence. It would be hard to argue if it's done through algorithms, and, and I'm sure as far that I couldn't even comprehend. But it comes up with this idea of fairness. How do you, how do you challenge that when it's done, and it's a math, maybe it's through math that it's shown? How do you argue that with? Mm-hmm. Social philosophical, I guess, arguments. How how do you kind of meet that in the middle? Where would you even start?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I can I'm thinking of something like uh, there a, a while back they studied what was called the Framingham Risk Score. Um, this was for the risk of cardiovascular disease, and they found that it disproportionately um, affected people of certain ethnic backgrounds and they were more likely to have a higher risk score for cardiac disease and so from a mathematical and research standpoint this is a phenomenon that is reflective of what is going on in the world. However, what lacked a bit of consideration was why that is. And so there's the whole idea of of racial biases within a society, how they are affected within a system or a structure, and how these things might kind of come together to produce certain disadvantages that then come about when you're assessing this from a research standpoint. And so on the one hand, if we were to change the algorithm and say, okay, well, we know it disproportionately affects these people, so let's correct it and make everybody look the same from the algorithm standpoint. Well, then you're neglecting the fact that there's an unaddressed health need. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be maybe not the best way to go about solving this problem. Um, so the uh, on the other side of things, you could have unfairness that might be an instrumentation error that leads to in one hospital system you might have higher than normal readings and if we set a threshold that's consistent across different hospitals that might result in one group having a higher level of interventions than another and we're not considering this effect of like instrumentation bias and so this might be producing unfairness in how these patients are treated and so I think we have to be really kind of attentive to not only the the broader literature, not just from ethics too, because I think that one of the most important ways to look at this is with an interdisciplinary lens and looking at people, what do they understand from a social science perspective, what is there from a neuroscience perspective or a psychological perspective, and then the clinical context as well. So if we kind of bring all of these things together and look at each of these different types of fairness or unfairness that can come about from these systems, then maybe we can figure out okay, are we going to address this at an algorithm level? Are we going to address it at an operational level? Or is this a societal issue that we need to be concerned with?
0: When you're making those decisions, how do you separate yourself from bias or, or life experience that can uh, come in to affect your decision making? Because that's people do that all the time oh, I shouldn't have done that, it's because I in the past, X So in in decision-making, for you, how is it that you can keep that out? Or does it come in and you just kind of accept that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, transparency in my biases sometimes helps. There's also a lot of reflection that happens. But I find that ethics is about collecting different perspectives. And there's many times when my first reaction is, A, and someone says, but Maria, you're wrong. What about this? And I go, oh yeah, I never thought of that. So then my my perspective shifts. So I'm, I try really hard to collect thoughts from other people, other professions, other people and in, stakeholders involved to, to make sure that we're, we're reflecting that and that we're thinking about all of these things before we come to a decision. I don't make a decision. As an ethicist, uh, my practice is not to give recommendations. I don't work as a surgical consult or a medical consult and I come in and I give my recommendation. I don't do that. I think of myself as uh, a team support i support the team because their relationship with the patient is most important and to insert me as a third party in that makes it a triangle makes it a bit trickier i'm not always there so the team has to have that strong relationship so so my my decision making is more uh support in getting the team to be as thoughtful as they, they can be and, and to understand and, and consider all the perspectives as they as they can so yeah and and i think life experience generally helps me understand some of the ethical issues at play and i think ethicists tend to be people who have had a prior profession or did a PhD in philosophy, you know, we have people coming to ethics from all sorts of areas, Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you have people coming to me from university, you know, they've done their bachelor's and they, I want to be an ethicist, Mm -hmm. and I'm going like, "Mm -hmm." you need to to find a passion to work in, get some life experience, and then add ethics onto that, because um, ethics is about how we get along. And if you haven't had a ton of experiences, your answer might be, well, let's just do a policy. <laughs> and and I find that that's not enough. That's not yeah. deep enough because no one has ever changed their behavior to a more ethical behavior because of a policy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I couldn't
2: agree more, actually. And bringing it back to sport ethics, which you mentioned, that's actually one of the other areas that I work in um, because I've done some work in understanding um, the problem of sport violence and particularly abusive young athletes. And so kind of exactly what Maria is saying, a lot of people who aren't um, really kind of entrenched in sport will tend to say that let's get a policy, let's get a policy and let's stop all of these things happening. And so then um, what, what you see happen is first of all no one's really complying with it because it doesn't work that well in the real world. And then the other thing is that it's not really resonating with the meaningful things that we're talking about. So one example sort of is um, limiting contact between coaches and their athletes. And of course, that sounds very reasonable. And it is something that I do think is important that there are supposed to be certain boundaries, but you also can see the incredible amount of benefit that young kids can get out of developing a relationship with their coach that extends beyond someone giving corrections at them from mm-hmm. wherever they are this is somebody who's and sports are kind of, they're always a metaphor for life right so your coach effectively becomes your life mentor in certain ways so yeah so i think uh they're they're very similar when you look at how these things come together we can address them from a policy level or a higher level perspective but it's really in understanding the individuals involved and where they're coming from that you really actually get that ethical richness.
0: The one thing that came up when both you were talking and, I, and I'm i curious about is are there such thing as mistakes then in your field of work and if there is a, a mistake how do you cope with that?
1: So I think the biggest mistakes it that arise in our field of work is when we don't have the time to get everyone's perspectives um, and trust is affected so if i'm telling a team that you know from an ethical basis these values are important and i miss something or i miss talking to an important stakeholder or we haven't asked or the team hasn't spoken to the patient sometimes i speak to the patient sometimes i don't um, it, we haven't asked the patient what they want then the big side effect is that loss of trust in from the patient and the healthcare team and that is so hard to fix mm-hmm. so those are critically important mistakes and they do happen um, sometimes you can correct them sometimes you can't you know sometimes people say to me you know um, there's a 17 year old and he's not participating in, in in physiotherapy and he wants to go home and he wants to leave the rehab hospital and and he's starting to, you know, throw things, you know, and his dad's saying, You have to team, how come you're not making him do the work and stay there? And you're going like, Whoa, what's the long term effect that this young person is going to experience if we're not listening to what his wishes are? And even though the team says, best to stay here, most physiotherapy here he's going like I want to go home I miss my friends I miss my dog I don't care what my dad says right Um, and the team says like now what so you know that we reflect on the future of this person's relationship with other caregivers the the ability of this person to return to health care for help in in the long term and and I worry that sometimes that trust is demolished or dented mm-hmm. in a way that will affect their health care in the long term. And that's right. important, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's a big I think that's a big issue because you hear it a lot of the time too, with people who have had a negative health care experience. It then perpetuates downstream and then and they talk to other people about it so I think there's an immense responsibility on healthcare, not just as an industry but as healthcare professionals to really try their best to get it right and the like the bare minimum is ensuring that patients feel heard and listened to because you might make a mistake we're all human but if the if the person feels heard and listened to then they don't at least feel like they were kind of sloughed off Mm-hmm. You know, there's that humanistic connection and we tend, generally, we tend to forgive each other when mistakes are made, if someone's coming to you and telling you that they made a mistake and that they're sorry for it.
1: So I think there's a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and we now have an Apologies Act in Ontario which allows people to say sorry without admitting that they're at fault and and i think for sure that the canadian medical protective association representing physicians has also switched in the last 25 years to allow physicians to say i'm sorry um, and to uh, not tie that with um, an admission of fault
0: and how do you separate that human side to all these conversations even with artificial intelligence at the end of the day that artificial intelligence is being used to help someone in a way be a mother father brother sister um, friend what coach etc how do you take that out of the the discussion and i ask because and I, i learned so much about Decision making, not that it's easy to practice just because you know it, but in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book and Mm -hmm. talks about the subconscious mind and then how to make decisions, I think the ability to do that is huge in life. And and so, how do you separate yourself from that? How are you, is there a practice as as it's been conditioned? Because obviously, you have an ability to to not let that influence work that needs to be done. Um,
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point because for me, I. I actually specifically remind myself of that because, and especially with my background as a neuroscientist, sometimes when they're talking about these like neural networks and their prediction models and stuff, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. And I I get excited about things like that. And then, so I always remember what is this going to look like when there is a person sitting there who is going to be affected by this? And I always try to remind myself of that because it could be, there. there's probably a lot of situations where we have really cool technology and it is really fascinating from an intellectual standpoint, even from a research standpoint, but if it's not going to help somebody, if it's not going to make... A difference to an individual person like even more so than you know this application might help this group of people I try to think about that individual person and how it's going to help them um, when I'm trying to contextualize some of these things and that's not to say that we can't explore some of those really cool questions but I think that healthcare has a special place first of all for being so trusted they are trusted to act in society's benefit and also we have a resp- like a, f- a financial responsibility in that they're largely funded by taxpayer dollars and so we have a responsibility to do things that are consistent with public values
0: mm-hmm so in a way you actually get so carried off into the AI side of things that kind of the opposite of what i where i was going with it is that you need that human side you need that reminder see i thought and obviously because i'm so i'm on the opposite side of you is that it's so human based of emotion and and well-being that it's i would have to remind myself that hey there's there's a bigger picture you can't always just think about the individual so it's that's a super fascinating whole conversation in itself right and and for you it's I, i don't know if if you would run into the same scenario where you have to separate yourself that it's a it's a human being that is being discussed or humans in plural and you have to make uh, not statistical but strategic decision it's not necessarily just human to human
1: in the hospital setting where i work uh, we often have bedside ethics and that's the individual we have also organizational ethics, so policies are being drafted, um, practice guidelines are being considered, um, medical assistance in dying, for instance, was a big a big project to try and figure out how we're going to do this and what the guidelines would be for that and how do we follow the law well um, in, in that area. And so when you're doing the organizational ethics, sometimes we do forget about who is being affected and There's been a push in the hospital setting to start asking patients and patient families. So there's uh, patient advisory groups that are being created within hospitals to be available when we start thinking about visiting hours. How are we going to change our visiting hours? You know, what, what, what do the patients and our families want? In the past, we would have just said, well, for the medical team, it's the easiest if we don't have any patients during this, any patient visitors during this time. And, and then you get, you know, a family member come, you know, I work all night, and I can only come during this time during the day. Can I come? And, and then you have to decide yes or no, right? And so by hearing from our patients and our families, I think we make better policies on a hospital level, and I really admire um, everyone who's making efforts to talk to patients and families so that when you're making those big policies affecting everyone, you've got a better sense of what People want, and when you're making policies, you have to be ready to revise them once in a while and allow for someone to appeal. Mm-hmm. right and when you when someone says, "This policy doesn't make any sense for me, do you say, "Well, too bad?" or do you say, "Oh, we never thought of this situation let's let's see what we can do to adapt it right uh, actually, and with that too,
2: there's a, a, a focus as well on especially eliciting the voices of children that hasn't often hasn't come up kind of historically and there's a bigger push toward it now because I remember my supervisor tells this incredible story about how um, they were designing a space for children with medical conditions and um, you know all the adults in the room are talking and trying to figure out what exactly they want and they're coming up with all sorts of sophisticated ideas and you know complexities and then they ask the kids what the kids wanted and well turns out they wanted practice doing up their zippers and tying their shoelaces because that was making them really concerned that they weren't going to know how to do that. And so wow. then, you know, you find out, this is a this is something, we can do something about this, and all we had to do was talk to some kids, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, uh, yeah, I think you get unexpected things when you talk to the people, and then it, it makes it even more satisfying when you, you know that you're able to do something that's really impactful.
0: And now before we get into... The specific specific topics that I think you guys might even have some of your own that you can bring up. Um, when you when you're finally at the point where you're going to make your decision, how do you confidently? And, and I know, like you said, you're not putting in you know the final say. You're just giving your opinion. When you finally um, are you know washing your hands of something, like I've put as much thought as I can into this. This is what this is my opinion here. You can our team has given you this opinion you make the decision what what is your approach to turning away from that and and blocking it out that you're not stirring over it stirring over it should i have done this should i have done that and you can kind of tell where i'm going with this whole part of this whole conversation like your ability to do this i think is very heroic and there's people that i should have done this i should have done that did i take that enough into consideration
1: so in my work in ethics i'm i think uh, reassured by knowing the law my background is in law originally i was a lawyer Um, and so i understand the minimal ethic fairly well and i can help people understand what the minimal ethic is but we try in our conversations to raise the ethics a little bit up from the minimal ethic of the law Um, and and so I find that our conversations often evolve, and there's never really an end to an ethical conversation. So the number of times, frequently, a team member comes to me and they say, can we have a little conversation? So I'll, I'll talk about a variety of things, Um, They probably end up confused. I send them a little email with no names and no identifying information, just saying these are some of the important values and ethical concepts that we talked about. Um, And and then I leave it with the team. And then they come back to me, let's say a week or two weeks later, or I'm invited to a team meeting a couple weeks later. And when I arrive, the thinking has evolved so much that often I don't have to say anything because that ethical awareness and ethical imagination has been boiling, cooking, developing, changing in everyone's minds during those t- those weeks. Um, so I'm always impressed on um, how little my involvement is and what a wonderful ethical imagination and solution building occurs at the end of that. So I don't ever think of ethical conversations as finished. They're always ongoing. Do you find that, Melissa?
2: I, I do, and I can think of some of the particularly challenging projects that I've tried to think my way through. Um, they, are, they are things that it, sometimes it seems like the more that you understand, the grayer it gets but you also start sort of narrowing down on something that as more and more evidence comes in, you're starting to feel like, okay, I understand the options better. And for me, I think my approach to kind of dealing with those challenges and addressing you know, whether I can sleep at night is like, did I ask enough questions? Did I ask the right questions? And so especially as I'm training in ethics a lot of that involves me talking to my colleagues and learning from them and asking a lot of questions which right. I know I'm getting a little bit of a reputation for <laughs> but for me like all of those little details I, I want to know all of these little details and knowing that I asked all of those questions, that helps me feel a little bit more settled in what I think my perspective is on something.
1: Mm -hmm. I would agree. I think ethics is a lot about process, much less about the end result. So the process, is it a good process by which you come to the decision? Rarely is there one perfect decision or one perfect answer. Rarely. That's not
2: when you get called.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: So, was that a little jab? I think no, was, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> no.
1: This, they, they call you when they don't have an answer and nothing seems like a good answer. And oh, you're okay. yeah. trying to figure out which of these possible answers is the best one and there's no, no one good one, usually.
2: Yeah, when it's like, here's your medical benefit. Okay, I agree, sounds good. That's not when ethics oh, gets called. Oh,
0: <laughs> I see, okay, that's a, that, I, if it was that easy of a decision, yeah. someone would have already made it. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, Okay. so
1: process is what I think we excel at. What we also do as ethicists is help verbalize the justification or the reasoning for the decision. So there are times when I say, okay, you're leaning towards decision A. This is what some reasoning would look like. And B is the other decision, this is what the reasoning would look like. And sometimes the team goes like, oh, A doesn't sound good. That would never pass the newspaper test tomorrow morning if this was in the paper. Hold on. And then they go, you know what, I think our decision is B. Right? So you don't always get to the answer from answer and then justify. Sometimes it's, let's justify, and, oh, the obvious answer, or the better answer, not mm-hmm. the only answer. The better answer is B versus A. So as ethicists, we help clarify the values, and then we help with the reasoning of the decision. And sometimes you get people who'll say, you know what, the process was good. I don't agree with the answer, but I can live with it.
0: <laughs> ah, okay, okay. That's cool. No, I like that approach to everything. I mean, it, I would have liked if schooling was done more like that. My my average <laughs> would have been a little higher, I think. Um, so now let's get into some of these complex topics. Just how would you, how, what would we have to take into consider? or what are factors that people might not even think of when it comes to, let's start with artificial intelligence, with maybe maybe examples of, of what are the issues with that, especially when, if this... Um, if this technology, we'll call it, is better than what humans can do or more consistent, we'll say, um, what should like what are the issues with that? With putting that trust into is it and does it take onus off of someone using something that's not human? Does that come into play? And yeah,
2: yeah those <laughs> I'll are leave a you lot of very yes. good <laughs> um, Yeah, so I think one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now is that. Artificial intelligence, particularly given some of the scandals within the private sector, artificial intelligence looks like the new big bad.
1: You okay. know, and it's
2: making people very nervous. But the reality of the situation is that this is a fairly logical progression of certain approaches that we've already been taking. So, for example, in research, um, we used to do predictions through a particular kind of statistical model and some AI related approaches sort of just extend that model a little bit further and add some additional processing steps. Now the scary thing about some of these AI um, approaches are that you don't necessarily know all of the possible permutations that are being considered by a computer in order to produce an output. And so that is where people tend to get a little bit alarmed because they feel like they don't understand how it did that. However, you could also say that that's kind of the same thing Um, if I say logistic regression model, you know? That's a pretty common statistical test, but not everybody knows kind of Mm -hmm. the mathematical underpinnings of that, and yet we're not nervous about that. Right. So there's a little bit of... uh, There's a little bit of cloud surrounding AI from that perspective. Now the things that do make it worthy of a little bit more consideration are things like the amount of data that we're processing and the amount of things that we can do with it. So data is, I think most people kind of agree now that they know that data, especially health data, can be used to learn a lot more about disease processes it can be used to create beneficial interventions and our ability to do this on the scale that is allowed by ai is unparalleled you used to you used to have to like recruit people for individual studies and it takes so long and then you're trying to kind of figure out okay how many people do I need to see an effect size and then ultimately what you're doing is you're comparing two groups of people but inevitably in each of those groups there's a little bit of overlap there's some people who fit your expectation and there's other people who didn't but you don't necessarily get that out of the test that you used so what AI allows us to do is instead of looking at two different groups where there might be overlap AI techniques allow us to kind of look at the trajectory of an individual and help us help us understand if it's from a research perspective. Looking at the trajectory of individuals might show us certain patterns that inform how they got to the outcome that we're looking at. Okay. Um, or from a predictive standpoint, AI applications might allow us to detect earlier when somebody is like headed into. A poor health situation <coughs> so these things these things rely critically on data but the other piece of this is that health data is incredibly sensitive and one of the clinicians that I work with I think said it best she said people tell doctors things that they don't tell their husbands their wives their best friends they tell them you know they tell us these incredibly personal things and it is a privilege it is a privilege to have that information and so now that information is being stored digitally and now we're using it and so at the same time that people are aware that there's immense benefit in that it's also very scary mm-hmm. and i think that a lot of the kind of catastrophization that's gone on around ai and the important and very, very relevant concerns from the private sector have made people unsure and I think that they don't they don't entirely understand kind of what is going on, what exactly are we doing and even people with a great deal of education and a great deal of understanding are still kind of struggling at figuring out okay what exactly is this data and is it one thing? Is it many things? And how do we approach this? So I think that's AI. Ethics yeah. In a snapshot. Wow.
0: <laughs> that, is, that is incredible. So then how would you apply? So you would be making the decisions on, like what would your role be in exactly that then? If a study comes up and there's AI and this artificial intelligence involved, you would take everything into account like we talked about and make a decision whether this is, viable or not, or reliable or not, or give your opinion on that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is something, so in my my background, um, I have uh, worked on projects that involve machine learning from a research context, and so some of the challenges that we look at are whether the consent that we got from patients, is it appropriate to use a machine learning application on what they originally consented to?
0: and so what would be an example of machine learning
2: uh so machine learning so it can be a couple of different things um one of which so one of which can involve like a prediction so let's say we know that there are these three categories of individuals with a particular outcome Uh, the way that this is being used sometimes is with like psychiatry so We have a group of individuals that we know have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. We have a group of individuals that we know have been diagnosed with a mood disorder, or sorry, um, like a psychotic disorder. And then we have a group of individuals who are neurotypical. And so what we might do with a machine learning approach is we might look at their neuroanatomy, we might look at their neuropsychology, we might look at their symptom reports, and we effectively ask the machine, can you tell us are there any like clusters that seem to be strongly associated with those categories that we chose? So, through those kinds of things, we might find out that like um, having poor sleeping habits is associated more with a psychotic presentation versus something else. Or are there particular brain structures that might be affected? And so, a lot of the analyses um, that are being done in this way are off of data sets that already existed and people consented to a research study and they may have been presented with this is what we're looking at through this research study. But through machine learning approaches which have come in quite recently, we've realized we can look at some other questions too. and so one of the kind of important pieces to look at is, is it is it really fair if these people consented to us using their data in this way, is it really fair to apply this new approach? And I think it depends very much on exactly what they felt they consented to and what kinds of approaches you're doing.
0: So what would be the issue with that though? Would it not be the end, would the end outcome not be benefiting society though? So if I was in that situation, I'm putting myself in those shoes like, Yeah, take it, use it however you want. Because you also said it's pretty much anonymous anyways.
2: We have a lot of people who say that. And so for me, there's two issues that come up. One is when you agreed to participate in research, you are, that's altruistic to me. You volunteered to put yourself at risk to allow me to understand a problem that may or may not even benefit you at all. And so... They agreed to put themselves at risk, and so for me, wearing my research hat, I have a duty to tell you what I'm going to do. And I think that as soon as we start moving too far away from that and saying, we're going to tell you what we're going to do, but maybe we'll do some other stuff too without telling you, that gets problematic for me. I think that we have a responsibility to tell people exactly what we're going to do and if we don't know it at least be transparent about that and say we don't know what we might find but
1: this is what we'd like to do and And then some people just interrupt and some people look at their privacy differently than others so Mm -hmm. my generation being old (laughs) you know (laughs) i'm very suspicious about new applications or new ways of looking at my data so i may have agreed to do a handwritten survey 20 years Mm -hmm. ago and all of a sudden now this is going to be put into a machine learning kind of thing and it's going to be digitized and there's going to be a new database created from this later study um, that will be accessed by 20 other researchers when I had envisaged 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. writing this thing, that I only had one researcher that I trusted that had asked me for this information and I gave it to them. So all of a sudden now, both with technology and with sharing of information, there's so many more people looking at my data and I'm, all of a sudden I'm going like, okay, who's protecting my privacy, who's anonymizing this information, is it anonymizable when you have a DNA sample, because nowadays techniques can still take a drop of blood and figure out, oh, that's Maria's blood, right? So. All of these things worry me as for my privacy. Younger people may not have the same approach. When you look at their use of Facebook, they may not be as <laughs> privately oriented as I am. But anyways, so those issues, I think, with increasing um, digitization, increasing increasing sharing of knowledge, um, I think eats away at that trust between the research participant and the researcher, that initial trust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have continuing trust between research participants and the researchers, if we're not transparent with how we're using data, how it's changing, how we're applying it, if we're not transparent, that trust can get eroded. And if that trust gets eroded, we're not gonna have a research Mm -hmm. enterprise left anymore. Right. So there goes back to that public responsibility for engendering that trust
2: yeah we're also we're publicly funded so the major (coughs) granting organizations again this is using taxpayer dollars so the public they're they effectively they have they have a stake in the research that we're doing and so I think that yeah exactly like you said like we have a responsibility to comply with their expectations when we tell them what we're going to do right right and the other thing that i that i come across a lot especially for people especially for people who have um a disease or a medical condition they are very very ready and willing to participate in research and they know it's not going to benefit them and yet they they have this trust especially in like especially in healthcare institutions and in academic institutions, they're like, I know you guys are trying to do your best. I know you're trying to figure this out. When you look at their trust in a private institution, it is completely different. Mm -hmm. It is completely different. And they do not want private interests kind of messing around in their data. Right. And this is kind of, this is one of the big challenges right now because Sometimes industry sponsors studies, or sometimes industry sponsors the infrastructure to do certain studies. And so I think we have a lot of work to do in kind of delineating, first of all, how we talk to participants in research about those kinds of things, and in how we go about negotiating with private partners to support research.
0: Right.
1: Sorry. Go ahead. And in addition to that, I think it's important how we report back to our research participants. We now have ways of communicating with them that we didn't used to have. We used to have to send a letter. Now (laughs) we could have um, portals or Internet sites where participants can go take a look and see how their research is being, how their personal information is being used Mm -hmm. or reused, or what kind of results are coming out of the research. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we have a, a ways to go to provide information back to our research participants in a meaningful way to help engender that trust right, in the right. research. Like when as it,
0: if you're along for the ride with them even so it's not just taken, goes to a black room and you never hear about it. Yeah. And yeah.
2: When, it's done, when it's done well, it's it's really nice and I say that from my own personal perspective because when I was pregnant I participated in a be healthy during pregnancy study and so they you know they worked with me all throughout my pregnancy and then at one year they said we have another study going on on neurodevelopment do you want to come back with your son and so I came back at one year and then they had another one going on they said can we contact you about any more and I said sure so now I get, I think it's a couple times a year, I get an email newsletter for, this is what we did for the Be Healthy in Pregnancy Study. Oh, cool. And these are the things we found out. Here's a link to all of our publications. Um, here are some awards that our researchers got. Um, here's some recognition in the media about what we're doing. And it just, it really, it makes you feel really good. Like, you read that and you're like, I participated in that. It, like, you feel fantastic.
0: Yeah.
2: So... Yeah, I think it's a really great thing when it's done well like that.
0: See, that's what, and that's where my mind went. I guess I didn't consider all the, the other sides to it of of release of personal information and how it can be used the wrong way or if it gets into the hands of a private group that is doing it for other reasons. So, see, that's why I do these things. I want to hear about things, but I think that's so cool because then that gives. It's almost like donating blood, like the the app now that mm-hmm. uh, the Canadian blood. <clears throat> Canadian Blood Society services services. like the app that they have is incredible now and you can see they let you see your bleed time all that stuff and you can kind of show where the blood is being used What kind? you have like it's like your little (coughs) Pokedex kind of thing of of information about and it makes I don't know to me it it makes it it's already an incredible thing to do when people donate I'm trying to catch Mm -hmm. my mom she has so she's gotten awards like they sent her a plaque because she's donated so many times so I'm trying to chase her down (laughs) but going off of that it's so cool now how they're doing it where I can totally agree with that I mean it's not research but it's huge where blood is needed right now. Here's where yours is maybe being used, not yeah. specifically, but um, that side's cool. It's, I guess, the only other thing is just if you paid people more, maybe they'd be more willing to be <laughs> research participants. And,
1: that, and, and we cannot, have some other ethical I think, issues. Yeah, I was just about to say. <laughs> and and the problem is, is that if we have a research um, base built on altruistic um, behaviors on people willing to do it for the benefit of society, and so let me ask you: If you were donating blood to a company that was going to sell your blood, you get nothing out of it, but the company gets to set the price for how much they sell their blood for. Mm-hmm. Does that make you feel less better about giving? <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it is, would it also if you had people that. Would you also get a specific type of people? Of yeah. person, sorry. If um. you're saying cuz it's generally people that are maybe they're in need of money so they're doing it. So would that put them in a different demographic that makes your research
2: biased? Well, Absolutely. aside from the bias issue too, like in the states where they pay you for plasma, there there are students who need money for for school and they will put themselves in quite precarious health situations trying to you know, sell their blood and, and and make money, and so you put people in a very kind of dangerous situation when you monetize it like that.
0: Okay, bad idea. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I bring one idea to the table and it's shut down. No,
2: you know what? Though we we do. Uh, it's it's not to say that research should go without compensation. So, for instance, in some of our studies, we'll compensate people for their parking. So okay, if they yeah. came to the clinic. Um, to see their physician and they also participated in a research study we we compensate them for parking or something like that cool. cool, but yeah there are and with clinical trials as well this is you know kind of come out not sure how recently but you have certain individuals who are they call them professional guinea pigs and they participate in trial after trial because there's money involved mm-hmm. and you do get problematic results from a research standpoint, and from an ethical standpoint,
1: wow! Yeah, the research results aren't necessarily representative yeah. of the population, the wide variety of population you were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Wow! And
0: to throw another, again, the not if there's an answer at all. How do we? How do you approach a, a complex topic of um, euthanization for people that? Want, that would want to euthanize themselves and I don't even know exactly politically where we're at with that or what the policies are now but I wonder so again it doesn't need to be a final answer but how do you approach that how, what would be the things you would have to take into mind or take into consideration sorry in this conversation
1: so first of all terminology is important okay euthanasia refers to me deciding for you that I know what's best for you and I will then terminate your life Euthanasia has no consensual part in it. We're not there, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But we do have medical assistance in dying, which requires the consent of the person. They have to be capable to make the decision at two points at the time that they ask for it, and they have to be capable just before it happens. And and there's a 10-day waiting period in between a reflection period.
0: So someone can say they are on board with it, and but they have 10 days to change their mind, in simple terms.
1: Yes, but they um, have to have that 10 days unless two physicians think that their disease process or their condition will change and their decision-making ability will be detrimentally affected and they won't be able to say okay to that. So rare cases, sometimes, we can shorten that window from 10 days to shorter. But we need to um, ensure that the person is capable. They're able to understand, able to appreciate a very serious decision with terminal consequences. Um, and we are not. The law doesn't currently allow someone to make a decision for you when you're not capable. So. Canada has adopted the law with medical assistance in dying in a very circumscribed, very small step approach because we're new at it and we're learning as we go. So no one under 18, you have to be capable at both points in time, you have to have um, intolerable suffering because of your condition, you have to have a reasonably foreseeable death, Um, your condition has to be grievous and irremediable that hasn't been well defined yet but grievous as in very serious and not able to be changed or fixed
0: Um, have you ever in your experience obviously anonymously has there been someone that said on day one and then day eight or ten they're like I've changed my mind
2: actually some of that they are starting to publish statistics on that and so uh I forget what the website exactly is, but you can look it up and you can see how many individuals actually have accessed medical assistance in dying, how many have changed their minds, and how many
1: have gone through with the procedure. So all of that is available to Canadians to know. okay. And it's important to know. In Oregon, I think it was like 70% of people who asked for it changed their mind. Yeah up till now up until november we were collecting only statistics in ontario each province was collecting statistics only on those procedures that took place and november 1st the government said the federal government said we need to collect all the statistics so that we know what the denominator is as well so that people around the country are feeling reassured that that you're not forced into it once you say yes or that there isn't undue influence on you Mm -hmm. that there are in fact lots of people saying no i just want it in my back pocket it's a bit of control because i'm losing control all over the place but i want a little bit of control left i'll put this in my back pocket if i need it i'll pull it in Mm -hmm. that's what you hear
2: overwhelmingly in this context from both clinicians and from patients and from their family members is that All of this comes back to control, and so you can imagine you may not have control over what your medical condition is, you may not have control over where you're able even to spend your time a lot of the time, but you might be able to have control over your level of suffering, your level of pain, and also how the short period of your life continues on or doesn't. Mm So I think for the people, for whom, the people who elect to pursue this procedure, they're very much focused on this idea of control, and I think that that was consistent with how the courts interpreted, or how they how they interpreted the legislation. It was about individuals having the right to self determination.
1: Right. Wow. So 25 years ago, the Rodriguez case was considered by the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, and this Supre- isn't even new. <laughs> and the Supreme Court of Canada said, you know what? Sanctity of life is still really important. But it was a close decision. And we, I think we think sanctity of life is more important than self-determination. 25 years later, the Supreme Court of Canada, looking at the Carter decision, said, you know what? Canadian values have changed a little bit. And we think that the balance is self-determination more important than this protection of life, this sanctity of life idea. Mm-hmm. And we think that having an absolute ban on having help, medical help to, to die is not justifiable. There are, still, there are some cases where we should lighten up on that. And so we have some specific cases where the government has said we can, we can allow in some cases. And, and as I said, we've got situations where you you don't want it to happen with, you know, kids under 18, people who have mainly a mental disorder, people who are not capable to make the decision themselves. Mm-hmm. So those are still situations that we're looking at. Not sure there's going to be any change in the next little while on those, but we're learning from what's happening so far.
0: I would be interested, like that's, I don't know, that just pulls me in that conversation. Like I would be interested on the, whole different topic of how does the psychology of those how does the psychology affect the health or the mind and the body in a sense of you've been you're willing like on day one you say yes i would like the procedure and then what does that mental process do over those eight days to affect their ability of healing or of or of i wonder what effect that has on the body if you're to a point in your life where you're thinking that that's a good decision that's a decision you're willing to make I wonder what that plays on the body. So, anyways, that's a conversation for another time. That's just what comes to mind. Because what went, when, right? Like, what changed a week and a half? Isn't
1: yeah, um, there is some research being done on that slowly. Um, we're collecting some data. But anecdotally, um, ethicists get involved sometimes in some of these situations. And the peace that the person experiences in knowing that they have a little bit of control seems to be the the big theme.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that they're
1: that they can they can peacefully die knowing that it's a control situation. They've they've said goodbye to the loved ones, they've done all their estate planning that they need to do, they've set up the room with flowers or food and champagne or music in the background. They know that once they're in the hands of the physician, it's going to be done quickly because right now we're still doing intravenous procedures. Oral procedures haven't yet been perfected.
0: In I guess in the gene editing scenario of or area of things, and in basically decreasing a population of people with mutations when they're born, the positives and negatives that come with that. And it's interesting, as I've researched a little bit about this, so many people talked about, well, if you um, limit the mutation in a certain group of people and then aren't able to do it in another group of people, is are these people now an even smaller group with less support and now less less reason for society to help those people which I didn't even think of so for I guess gene netting what other what other things are we taking into consideration and and I guess decreasing all these different issues we have today is that a good thing on the surface it seems like yes let's not have people that live in but also at the same time they don't know life other than how they have it I'm not saying that's okay or make things any easier but for that individual, I've also read that a lot of people would say, you know, I don't know life different than whether it be autism, whatever it is. I don't know life different than what it is now. So to say that I will go back and change it, right? So that's been interesting too. But yeah, I guess where, what would your approach be? How do we approach the topic of gene editing?
2: Yeah, one of the things that, uh, and I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the recent issue with CRISPR. So we have our, our strands of DNA and we have our whole genetic code. So CRISPR essentially is the idea that we can cut out a section of that code and replace it with something else. And so the controversy that has come up was that there was an individual who, under the presumption of research, um, edited the genes for, uh, I believe it was two baby girls in vitro, and the intent was for them to not contract HIV. And so these two children, they have now been born and they now are going to go about living their lives and we don't have a thorough understanding of the consequences and so there's been a fair bit of controversy as to what degree was this research sanctioned by institutions um, as well as the fact that there's still the ethics community and the gene editing community had not been settled on whether this was an appropriate thing to do. And so a lot of the controversy that has come up has been because of that, that we haven't really figured out a good way to do this. And in this circumstance, this is not one of those clear cut circumstances where you were preventing a significant an imminent harm to an individual. This is one of those grayer circumstances. And so there have been a lot of questions that have come up as to whether this was ethically appropriate to do.
0: And was this because, in that specific scenario, was it because the the mother had HIV or so that, oh, okay.
2: Yes, but we have ways of preventing children from contracting HIV from an affected parent. We already have a mechanism for that. And so that's why some of the question has come up as to was this really the best way of trying to prevent that? And also even if they had contracted HIV, we have effective medications for that. People Mm -hmm. live long and healthy lives being HIV positive. And so was this really, what what benefit was really being conferred to those individuals?
0: And they don't have HIV today.
2: I don't know the specific details about it. Um, I just know that they were born alive.
0: That's great. Yep. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. That's that's crazy stuff that they can do that. Like, what even? What level of 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 science is that? Like, what would that like? What is, it, how low of a level is that, that they're able to do something like that? And is it, how, how is, do you know how it's done? Like, is it done with a machine? Is it done with?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know too many details about CRISPR specifically, um, but I know that this was a case. Um, so I believe what they did was they, um, this was in vitro. So the eggs would have been extracted from the mother and fertilized And it would have been, I think, at that stage that they edited the genome because you effectively, when it's fertilized, you have two cells. I'm going to double-check my medicine (laughs) on this one, but... But that's basically the stage where they would have been able to... Basically, they snip and then replace a part of the genetic code. So, from a science perspective, one of the reasons that i say that this feels a little premature Mm -hmm. is that even when we know this gene is responsible for this condition so huntington is a good example of this we know the gene we know that if you have this genotype you will have huntingtons but genes aren't just responsible generally for one thing right there's a lot of other things involved and so without a thorough understanding of all of the things that that gene might be involved in, it can be very dangerous to start modifying those things when we don't have a full understanding. And that's just from a science perspective, not even from an ethical perspective Mm. of of whether we should do that. Um, But one of the things that I think is important to recognize when we're talking about gene editing is that we already have a society that sets up that effectively has significant barriers for individuals who don't who differ from sort of our neurotypical and you know able-bodied standard so and I even I noticed this just trying to get to the bus stop every day you know I park my car and I've got to walk maybe two blocks and there's ice all over everything you can't get across there's no snow removal and I'm thinking how am I supposed to navigate I can barely navigate these things as an able-bodied person and we already have individuals who have significant challenges in trying to just move through the world and I think that, that that's a big issue and so one of the things that I worry about when it comes to gene editing is are we just going to continually kind of reduce pool of individuals with differences. And there's been a lot of work done um, by individuals who have expertise in disability ethics. And um, a lot of the conversation centers around um, whether disability in itself constitutes a harm or is the harm coming from the world that is structured for able-bodied persons. And I think there are some really, really important Questions and important considerations that have come out of that work that I think are very, very relevant to gene editing. And if you're interested, there's this fantastic book by Chris Capozzi. Um, it's called Choosing Down Syndrome. It is a beautiful book. And um, in it, he talks about, talks about some of these issues, how we didn't value different ways of being for such a long time. And we're only kind of starting to get this now in different ways, Um, And so for the question of gene editing for me comes down to if there were situations where there was a very significant foreseeable and near certain harm that was coming up, then we can consider how we might rationalize those kinds of procedures. And there are certainly precedents that, that could be considered in that framework. Um but uh, a lot of the other applications of this technology really could kind of, again, narrow us into this standard where we think everyone needs to fit and I think that that's quite problematic.
1: When you speak to families of children with um, differences, they talk about how much they've learned from those children, mm-hmm. how much love um, they have received from these children. Jennifer Johansson has uh, put her experiences with her disabled little boy who has since passed into a book called No Ordinary Boy. Mm-hmm. And it's the the learnings that she and her family have had from this experience are very profound, and to take away this with the presumption that we can make everyone's lives better and without strife, without the learnings that come from hardship, I think is short-sighted, and this is where I think we really need to speak to the families and the patients with disabilities to better understand what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. and what their wishes would be i don't know that everybody would agree that they would give up what they have yeah it's
0: yeah. like it goes back to let's hear what the kids say let's hear what the kids yeah. have to say before we put on all these yeah. policies and decisions it's and I, yeah it's a very i find it a very interesting topic another point i saw was this idea of resilience and when we sat down before we even started recording all three of us have talked about, okay, there's an issue here with this resilience in our society and that mm-hmm. it's decreasing and that sport can be so powerful for that and, and et cetera, et cetera. So the, another point I saw in this regard of, of the gene editing is what if we had all these and it's able, I don't want to even say able body, just able in whatever way. Um, we just have people without this challenger, without right, any, re, any need for resilience. You're just born with these perfect you're born with a perfect gene that aligns you for this this and this and it's just it seems like a scary thing when we're already having <laughs> resilience issues in in a young i would even include my demographic is where it's really um mm-hmm. an issue so i agree yeah yeah is there did you have any other thoughts on the whole gene editing approach or <laughs> oops, issue um, of
2: yeah i think i think one of the things. That we have to consider from a science perspective is that this issue it is so complicated, and I think the testament to that is that you know in the 90s when they started the human genome mapping project, we thought genes were going to be the answer to everything. We really did. We thought you know we can identify the genes that are at play, and then you know we'll figure out how to address that, and and it'll all we'll figure it all out. And we're finding out now that it is much more complicated than that. Um, in fact, some of, the, some of the most like well-known studies that have identified um, genotype variations among specific populations of groups, um, they actually, those, those differences actually only account for a small percentage of the total group of people diagnosed with a certain condition. Now, on the other hand, Uh, A lot of what I'm hearing as well is going a little too far the other way where people are starting to say now, oh, it's all epigenetics and, you know, this is all our environment. It's the nature versus nurture. And I think both extremes, I think it's fair to say both extremes are probably wrong. (laughs) And so and the other thing, too, that I worry about is when you place everything into the epigenetics bucket, then you're putting people in a situation where they Effectively, are to blame for all of their circumstances, and I think that that's very problematic.
0: So saying that if you set, you're basically setting them up for success. So if they don't succeed, is that what you're saying yeah. is an issue? Oh, okay. You're
2: essentially saying, well, maybe you have the gene. Well, one example is intergenerational trauma. So you're effectively saying to someone, okay, well, you may have intergenerational trauma from history of residential schools and genocide. And, but it's all epigenetic, so it's on you to like overcome that. And that I think is really problematic because the other thing that we understand is genes may not be the ultimate answer, but they influence the way that our brain develops, they they influence the way that our physiology develops. And then when you combine that again with the societal and systemic structure that maybe isn't set up for certain individuals to flourish. Then you get into a situation where trying to kind of tell them, well, you know, pull yourself up by your britches and take control, that that puts them in a really difficult position, because they already have all of these things that they're having to contend with,
0: mm-hmm. and so
2: we're saying, well, no, it's on you, and
0: because we've put you on this path, we've yeah, made that, yeah.
2: I think I think that that's very harmful. So I think, again, the ideal approach is kind of in acknowledging that, I mean, every individual, no matter your background, is coming into this world with certain advantages and certain disadvantages. And we can move a certain amount within that. I think we can move a fair bit within that. But we also, we have to set individuals up for that. And I think that part of this whole nurture rules everything conversation that's happening is putting a little bit too much onus on certain groups that have been disadvantaged to ameliorate their own situations.
0: Right, right, yeah, it's it's kind of the situation of when people say everything happens for a reason. Well, yeah, go ask someone that has been through X, Y, or Z that is just incredible or hard for anyone to even fathom. It's so intense, right? So that's kind of the same thing. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, we don't need that. But then you ask another group and they say, I would do that in a second if I could change whatever it is right so um yeah it's a there's just so many aspects to it and i think that example alone speaks to speaks volumes of what you both are able to do and and i think on a daily basis maybe we'll have to circle back as policies change and and things change we'll we'll chat about things further
2: Mm -hmm. good cool thank you it's been really great chatting with you likewise likewise
0: (laughs) thank you thanks That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. It is incredible all the different viewpoints we're getting on this podcast. If there's a viewpoint from someone or a certain career, someone that's experienced something, and not necessarily a specific person, but if you have something in mind you want discussed on the podcast, please shoot me an email. There's a link in the description of this episode. And as always, if there's any feedback, any questions, any conversation you want to have post-episode, send me an email. I'd love
2: to chat. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.